Hello and welcome to Superhero Ethics. Today we're going to prove that we can find ethical issues in anything and that Matthew and Paul are utterly unable to watch things without wanting to record on them. Yes, that's right. Today we are talking about Godzilla vs. Kong and that entire series of movies about kaiju. I mean about titans. I mean about animals. I mean about monsters. I mean, we're going to talk about that along with a lot of other things right after this commercial break. I have no control over Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. I'm joined today by someone who's very certainly very much not a co-host, even though he's recorded with me at least once for the last seven weeks and probably eight out of the last ten or eleven, Paul Hoppy. Uh, Paul, this is the second time we're recording today because you're very much not a co-host. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing well. I'm enjoying not being a co-host, just a guest <laughs> on this podcast. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Well, um, I'm excited to talk about this topic with you, but frankly... I wouldn't have really been thinking about this topic. I frankly wouldn't have watched these movies if it weren't for Nate Muzzy. Uh, Nate is another person who's part of our Stranded Panda podcast network. He and Matt Carroll did a series of um, did a series of podcasts on the Bingers Assemble podcast, all about the monster movies. The uh, as I said, we're going to discuss what we actually should call them, but the Godzilla and Kong universe that was created of four movies. And, Nate, I loved what you had to say on those, and I knew when we got talking about these movies, I'd want to have you on, because you clearly have a, a real love and a real knowledge of this topic that I think neither Paul nor I have. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, just wanted to compliment you and Paul on your Falcon and Winter Soldier coverage. I've really been enjoying it. Uh, awesome, thank or you. Or enjoyed it, I guess, now that the show is over. <laughs> womp, womp. <laughs> oh, there will always be more. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and thank you, Nate. I, I will admit that you have been one of the people who has been most prolific in commenting on the show in our Stranded Panda Facebook chat group, uh, which is a great group. People should definitely join it. Uh, and I've probably, frankly, stolen your ideas at least more than once. So thank you for all that you contributed as well. <laughs> a few months it. back, I told you you could steal anything I put in the Facebook group. So I'm glad you're taking advantage of that. Definitely. Definitely. So, Nate, Paul and I want a second talk about where we came to these movies from. But you are obviously the one who who comes to this as as the biggest fan of the uh, kaiju genre. So, tell us a little bit about like how how you came to really love this genre and what it means to you. So, for me, there's a lot of nostalgia in these franchises. Um, sci-fi, and I don't know that back when they spelled it like normal people, uh, used to <laughs> always do a monster marathon towards the end of the year. And my mm-hmm. birthday is December 30th, so oftentimes my birthday would be spent watching Godzilla movies because all of my friends were on Christmas vacation. Uh, so I, I I'm would... born at the end of August. I know your pain. Right. Uh, and, and so I, I came to these movies as just a casual, you know, they were fun to eat birthday cake and watch the silliness of the rubber suits and the practical special effects but then you they start to grow on you and you start to learn learn about like the original films and and you start to get a genuine appreciation for them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and so i i I will always have a deep-seated love for these characters just because they meant so much to me when i was a kid right that makes sense. And Paul, what about you? Had, do you have any attachment to these movies before I said, hey, you should actually kind of watch these maybe? Mm, um, my main experience would be actually, I think it was a TurboGrafx-16 game. I tried to look it up, but I didn't find it. 
where you played a kaiju and you smashed cities and uh-huh. fought other ones, other kaiju. Um, is that Rampage? Yes, that yes, Rampage. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's the game. Was it TurboGrafx-16 or was it like Sega or something? It was an arcade game that was ported to everything. Everything. Yeah. Okay. I I almost remember it as eating up quite a lot of my quarters over the course of my childhood. (laughs) Right, right. I played it at a friend's house on a console, so uh, my quarters were spared. But, uh, Uh you know, I rather enjoyed it. Um, The the movies uh, I have thoughts on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate the love of... Especially the, as I call them, giant animals. We'll get into that later. Um, there's things about the movies that bother me a lot. Um, I did watch, I like started watching one, then another, and I, I watched Skull Skull Island, and um, I can appreciate that it is a well-made movie. Um, right. The one that I think I enjoyed the most was actually probably uh, Godzilla v. Kong, mostly right. from the spoilers right for all the things well I, let me just uh say, I, I at this point i think we're definitely gonna get into those but i'm okay. just more wondering like before you started watching these four oh, movies had you yeah. seen any other godzilla or king kong movies or kind of what your connection to this uh, genre was yeah little i mean i'd seen old you know the the jack black king kong or whatever um okay. and <laughs> i i saw the the brian cranston godzilla movie which i guess is the first in this series um, right. But yeah, no, I had very little, um, very little frame of reference or experience outside of Rampage, which I loved. Yeah, uh, I certainly played a lot of Rampage. I, I think I'm kind of halfway in the middle with you two, uh, although much closer where you are, Paul. I had not seen any of these movies until, uh, Nate, you, you and others started talking about them in the group. And I think I'd always been much more interested in the idea of them. Like, I'm definitely interested in... Obviously, I'm interested in movies as metaphor, and so, you know, I I had read a lot about um, the idea of some of the, the original of these movies coming very much as a commentary out of Japanese cinema about nuclear weapons and nuclear power and sort of all the dangers of it and that all the metaphors that the early movies were part of and as they later grew. And I, I sort of think I've been always kind of curious, and I always in a sort of like, yeah, one day I should really make myself sit down and watch some of those movies, but I just never really got a chance to. Uh, or just always had something else to do, or just didn't make myself do it. Um, and then, frankly, I saw Pacific Rim. And, oh, yeah. And that's something we're going to talk about, because it, I think the shadow of Pacific Rim definitely has a, a falls over these movies, in definitely in terms of the names they use, uh, and that's been confirmed by the writers. But also just in terms of, I think, for a lot of people, I think Pacific Rim was their first kaiju movie. And... Even using that term is a little weird because that those movies are very much not in the Godzilla tradition, but they are definitely in the giant lizard monster tradition, and they actually use the word kaiju. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that had also gotten me like, yeah, I, I like a good Pacific Rim-style movie. Cause Pacific Rim, I thought, had done an interesting mix of like a fun movie of just giant monsters and giant robots punching each other, but also like giving us really good characterization and plot and fun dialogue and stuff like that. Yeah, anything so, yeah, with when, Idris Elba is instantly watchable. So Also, also, yes, true. And I was a huge um, uh, Sons of Anarchy fan. Oh, that's So right. knowing that the, the star of this was the star of that was yeah. also a, a big plus for me about Pacific Rim. So, yeah, so now, um, so with that, and I think, and I think all three of us have very different reactions to these movies themselves. We're going to get mostly into, like, just kind of ethical questions that they raise, because I think they do raise some, even though some we might have to, like, poke and prod to get at it. But just kind of in general thoughts, so, and again, Cohen, Nate, 
what was your kind of overall take on these four movies? Like, did they give you what you wanted as a fan? Um, yeah, there was a lot of fan service in these. Um, what I wanted, I would have, I would have absolutely loved if they all had as much characterization as we got in Skull Island. I don't think they're all the strongest films, and I would have loved to have that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to it, I got the characters I love in high def, beautiful, stunning graphics. And that's really the bar I had set. So, yeah, I, I saw my favorite kaiju fighting in high def. I can't complain. <laughs> that makes sense. And Paul, you started doing this before, but what was kind of your take on these movies overall? Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> I wait. So, so spoilers, right? We're yeah, yeah. This is gonna have. Um, granted, I don't think there's many huge plot twists in these movies. <laughs> um, right, right, right. Spoiler alert: the monsters fight each other. The big animals <laughs> fight each other. Um, a lot of humans get killed. There's humans doing really dumb things with technology because I think they can control it. Uh, we're going to spoil everything from these movies. I don't think being spoiled will ruin your enjoyment of them. Um, I don't think it's possible to enjoy some of them, but Nate obviously stands in very much <laughs> difference to me, and that's really want to honor that experience. And we're going to talk about that towards the end. But yeah, yeah. If, if, no, if not being spoiled about these is important to you, then I would say pause, watch at least a couple of them, or maybe all four, and then come back and talk to us or listen to us. Go ahead, so, Paul. Right. So I thought Skull Island was very well made. Um, Mm -hmm. but I found it very disturbing and almost rage quit halfway through. Um, I, the only part that I like really just unabashedly enjoyed throughout these movies was Godzilla and Kong fighting against like Mecha Godzilla or whatever it was. Um, and in general, just when, when the animals were killing humans, that was the time that I was enjoying (laughs) the movies so i was like yay they ate the guy you know yeah um so like i'm definitely on team titan so (laughs) very fair uh you know and and there's some things about the depictions that we'll get into but yeah i i um i enjoyed the pitch meetings also for the movies um and that Uh kind of maybe informed some of my understanding or not understanding or understanding of my not understanding of some of the plots um I think the plots are there. I mean, when they're there, <laughs> but like, yeah, the, they looked really good. You know, um, yeah. I mean, King of the Monsters. I feel like everything's a little too much in the dark. I think, whereas uh, Skull Island and parts of Godzilla v Kong, you get to actually see the fighting more. You know, yeah. and um, it's not so obscured. And um, and I, you know, I enjoy. that when they're winning against the humans yeah (laughs) but not as much when they're fighting each other yeah and i definitely get that and i have to say nate i really appreciated what you had to say both now but also on those um binge assemble podcasts because frankly i got i watched i love skull island to me skull island is like pacific rim like there's great fighting scenes it's a lot of fun but also just a quality movie i thought king of the monsters was pretty good i and you know, that's why we have a diversity of voices here. Mm-hmm. Think Godzilla vs. Kong is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, and the original <laughs> Godzilla is close. Um, and partly it surprised me when I just heard that, like, yeah, that the people just wanted to watch monsters fight each other and, or, or 
big animals fight each other. What else do you want? Um, and I should, I'm sure there's movies where I look at it in the same kind of a way. But like, yeah, I said, that's why I was like, no, let's discuss the ethics questions. And I think, I think that's part of why for me, to me, Kong and King of the Monsters felt a lot more consistent on those questions than the, than the first and the last one did. But, but that's why we're talking about it. So, so and let's kind of use that to transition to, to the first question I want to get into, which is it feels like for so many of these movies, for all four of these really, a key theme is the idea of humanity's relationship to nature and to the living things in nature. And that, and again, this I think is, as you said, um, I, I didn't realize this until I really did the research, but the, the writers of this were really trying to go very deep on the original meaning of the original movies of this and to honor that tradition. And like, as you said, Paul, this is not Jack Black, Godzilla. This is not Matthew Broderick, King Kong. This is really trying to go to the, the original sort of kaiju movie themes. And I know that that was often a theme there of the, like the, you know, humanity thinking that we know everything about nature and that we control nature, but that often we're, we're not going to know. What, what's kind of your overall take on the way these movies approach that question of sort of humanity's belief that it is the, the king of the earth and in control and that we deserve it and these movies being a very sharp, like, nope, we, we don't. So can, can we swear on this podcast? Fucking Fuck yes. hell yes. Okay. <laughs> the directors of these movies and the writers of these movies are so up their own asses thinking <laughs> that the message they're telling is anything on par with the original movies. That's they, and, and part of it is, it is a shared connected universe with no guiding voice, and we can talk about the Feige factor in some other format. I would but, say, as a Star Wars fan, I have no idea what that's like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know... The fact that they want to mimic the original Godzilla, especially, but then Godzilla is a natural occurring creature that's part of a larger species, completely Mm -hmm. misses the point of the original Godzilla, which is we create our own monsters. Uh, In that movie... Our our nuclear testing created the problem. In well, this you, movie, in here. It's, oh yes, yeah, so keep going. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, uh, please. No, no. You, I, you're about to say what I was going to say. So you finish. Uh, this thought. is so Minnesota. It, <laughs> <laughs> From my understanding, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but this is what Matthew said to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's just the two of us waving for the other to go at an intersection. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Which is such a Minnesota thing. But no, what I was saying is, instead, in these movies, the the Titans are these giant prehistoric animals that fed off of radiation. And it's, it's such a different take. Right. And I, for me, big Titan fight work but the thinking part of these movies, not so much. Not so much. I, I can definitely see that. And, and, Paul, I want you to jump in here, but I want you to quick respond to that with, with one question mm-hmm. for Nate. One of the things that I think is always interesting is that when a movie is based in the fears of a particular time and place, and then you tell that movie then, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, you sometimes, sometimes you, you want to honor that and stay exactly the same. Sometimes you want to update it, you know, like... 
V for Vendetta is written about Thatcherism, but then, then the, the movie is clearly about a different kind of set of fears and things like that. Do you think that the Switch, I, I, I fully agree with you that probably the originals did it much better, but do you think the Switch is in part because those originals are written during the Cold War when the threat of nuclear war is very present when, and written by Japan, obviously, you know, not long after having been the victim of, of nuclear weapons. And that today, part of it is that, like, you know, we now have most generations didn't grow up hiding under their desks or thinking about nuclear war as a as a thing and that the, the nuclear threats have faded somewhat. Do, do you think that might be part of the shift or is this just a let's do it differently to, to make ourselves stand out? I, I think I, I think you have a valid point. You know, in the first and second Godzilla films, Godzilla is literally driven by the ghosts of the dead Japanese from the mm. nuclear attack. So obviously that is a point that wouldn't strike home as hard today. And I think what Gareth Edwards was going for in the 2014 Godzilla was God's, these kaiju is an allegory for climate change because he yeah. wanted them to be these forces of nature. Right. But the connection just isn't there and doesn't work but it's very pretty to look at yeah that makes sense <laughs> yeah that that i mean i find your uh description of the first two godzilla movies compelling and now i want to watch them but yeah. <laughs> um for these movies i definitely feel like there was you know there's an awareness that humans are treating the planet in um well a horrific way and and the environment and you know animals and i think it's sort of supposed to be a metaphor of like well the earth doesn't you know belong to humans and and humans are kind of overstepping bounds or something like that but it does it through the device of being like oh humans don't rule the earth because humans aren't really the apex you know, species. Right. But to me, that misunderstands the point because in our world, humans do have more control than any other species. Right. And it's not like, it's not like the problem is that that's not true. The problem is that that is true and humans are misusing that power and mistreating animals, mistreating, um, you know, plants and, you know, the environment overall. And of course, mistreating each other. And so, um, you know, I find it like intriguing, but then like kind of to me missing the point of like what's really going on on Earth now. Right. Yeah. To me, I think the point that it was always much more interesting that and Nate, I'm glad you pointed out that it's four different writers and four different directors because it really helps to explain the, the sort of lack of cohesion to some For extent sure. across the four movies. To me, the point that I, I think some of the movies all all point at this and then some go more towards the apex predator but both themes are found in, in all of them the one the side of it that i more lean to was where it's not as much about apex predator it's about control mm. you know the idea that the earth belonging to humans and and how dangerous that that idea is because you know you're right in these nuclear weapons don't create godzilla but they reawaken him Right and the the destruction of of the environment and of, of nuclear testing and stuff like that is what further drives these animals uh, to 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 be doing what they're doing. 
and and then of course, obviously, in the last, you know, and the, to some extent, there's there's this hubris in a number of the movies of, you know, we can control them, that we can, uh, you know, keep keep Kong in his, you know, containment, and everything will be okay, or we can go and do tests on him, or that they can, um, you know, in the third movie, King of the Monsters, there's like all these uh, mutos, as they call them, um, massive uh, unidentified terrestrial unidentified organisms. terrestrial organisms. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, as I said, the naming of them is a topic we'll get into. Um, but that, you know, a lot of them are like in laboratory, in these huge laboratories built around where they're resting, trying to be controlled. And there's a thought of like, let's build this machine that can control them. And I, and then of course, obviously the fourth one is all about like, can we literally like build a Godzilla that we can control? And of course it shockingly doesn't work out. <laughs> um, and, and again, it, it has all the subtlety of a hammer, but I, I, I am interested in the questions it raises there about, the hubris there of humanity of thinking that like it's kind of, not even just thinking that we control everything but the I don't know because Paul you and I go back and forth sometimes on the idea of like humanity being hubristic but to me it's the much more specific of that we know everything that we know enough and that mm-hmm. we know everything about the world there is to know and that it seems a lot of these movies are about no 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 there's, there's literal entire worlds and entire groupings of of living beings that you have no knowledge of and no ability to control yeah i mean there's always more to know right right and there's in you can't control everything it's just not a thing um humans have gotten to a point where humans can control a lot of things or more specifically a small number of humans can control a lot of things (laughs) But, you know, then that raises the question, well, who's in control, right? It's not like it's a vote of 7 billion people, how we're going to proceed in terms of environmental issues and try not to destroy the planet. Generally, it's all of these fractured, separate decision-making entities that claim to be representative of larger groups, but very rarely are in any meaningful way. Uh, and often are mostly protecting their own interests. And so in this series, you know, there's people who are seeking to understand, and then there's other people who are seeking to control, and they kind of act like they're trying to do it, like, for humanity, particularly, Uh you know, the ones who are trying to control. Uh, But I'd say they aren't all of them, Mm -hmm. right? Some of them want control for themselves. And... You know that's uh, that's generally not so good. Yeah. <laughs> you know when when Matthew was talking, I couldn't help but think of the lyric from the old Blue Oyster Cult song, which is "History shows again and again how nature points out the folly of man," mm-hmm. and that is what the old movies were about. And these movies are. As as we got in uh, King of the Monsters, they are kind of a bad remake of that theme. Yeah. We we got a bad remake of the Blue Oyster Cult song, and we got a not as good riff on that theme. <laughs> well, first of all, I give you credit for knowing a knowing that it exists, but b being able to quote a Blue Oyster song. Blue Oyster Cult song that is not Don't Fear the Reaper. So, well done there. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and there I do wonder a lot about the inconsistency. Um, and here I'll bring up what is 
the thing that first really drew me in, especially about Kong Skull Island, and then I think I was really disappointed by because it felt so inconsistent, is the organization of Monarch. Because I think the idea of a group of humans that are saying, okay, we know that this thing exists, and that if humanity knows about it, they'll be utterly terrified, and we need to figure out some way to work together to do something with this, and that that's a big part of the plot is a fascinating thing, especially because it can go in a direction. It can be, this is super shadowy and governmental and awful and, you know, is causing incredible harm to humans and is just covering things up because they don't want to get caught. Or it can be more like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., pre-Hydra, where it's like, what they're doing is pretty shady and in the secretive, but they are fundamentally trying to help, you know, and to make things better. And... and Nate, maybe especially because you've seen other of these movies or, or have more insight, you may see this differently, but it felt to me like the, the, the four movies had absolutely no consistency of what Monarch was in terms of like, is this a fundamentally trustworthy organization that we're on the side of, even if they're doing shady things? Is this, this is evil government corporational, you know, conspiracy stuff that we're totally fighting against? I, I got no sense of where Monarch stood and how, what I should think about it. What, was that your take as well? Yeah. Um, so we get the origin of Monarch or an origin of Monarch uh, in Skull Island, or that's the earliest point we see them. And they're on the brink of not existing. And then presumably they get more funding by 2014's Godzilla. And after the San Francisco incident all of a sudden by King of the Monsters, they have like a fortress of an airplane, which felt like a direct Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. ripoff. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a boss by, by definitely, yes. or a helicarrier. Uh, and, and they've got like an oil platform that's actually to monitor Godzilla. But yeah, you right. know, it just... And then at the, at the end in... Godzilla versus Kong, they're providing like aid to people uh, who were harmed in a Godzilla attack, which is right. not something we've seen them do. And I, I like the part of Monarch that intrigues me is that they're these scientists and researchers who are trying to figure out how how we can coexist with these titans, right? And they lose that thread. All the time, almost constantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Skull Island, they mostly wanted to kill them, right? Or did they right. want? Well, I think I think they wanted to, to study them and to kill them. Okay. And um, uh, in Skull Island, which is a movie set in the early seventies, yeah. And I think in, in a really interesting part of the commentary that we're not going to get into much, um, it's set right in the days that America is is, surrend- is basically leaving Vietnam and, mm-hmm. the mil- and the military involved are those who are having trouble like coming to terms with the fact that basically they lost the Vietnam War. Yeah. So there's also the great stuff there. But but yeah, in, um, in that movie, Monarch, as Nate said, is about to fail. And basically they arrange a trip to go to study this island, claiming it's, um, you know, for geological purposes, because maybe there's some, you know, great monsters there. But the head of the Monarch Expedition Group, John Goodman, who I love that actor and he's fantastic in this, is like 
dastardly person. Yeah. You know, he's supposed to be someone who in the 1940s survived the initial Godzilla sighting has always been like humanity to know what's coming. And he's basically willing to sacrifice everyone. on. He knows that people on this trip are going to die. He doesn't warn them because he wants there to be that shock value so that the world finds out that these things exist and has to act. And, and the sad thing is, as Nate pointed out, he's basically right. And he, he gets eaten by a monster. And it's kind of satisfying. <laughs> um, but what he wanted is exactly what winds up happening. Yeah, I mean, there there were monsters in that movie, and it was him and the I think the Samuel L. Jackson character who yeah. said, you know, who was we didn't lose the war, we abandoned it. But right, um, but I mean, I can understand how somebody who'd been sent to to wage that war would would not feel fondly about the way things went. Right, um, like he wasn't the one who declared it, but uh, yeah, it. it <sighs> Yeah, Skull Island really had, I think, a lot of well-drawn characters. And um, Monarch, it, it did have this, like, they were kind of like, oh, well, we wrote everything, like, on loose-leaf paper, right? All our presentation materials are loose-leaf. I guess in contrast to, like, how fancy everything is later on. Um, but it, it didn't feel like there was this real connection between them then and then later... Um, Serizawa's part of, part of Monarch, right? Right. Correct. So, that felt, like, that didn't necessarily feel like a guy who would have been working for the organization started by, you know, the John, John Goodman Kingsley. character. Yeah, right. But... Go ahead, Nate. Oh, I was just gonna say, Serizawa, like, not existing in that film in any way feels like a mistake um, skull island in skull island yeah like even in a post credits mm, because yeah. we actually do see ling and brooks from that movie again in king of the monsters but they don't point it out at all right yeah it's i felt like, like some characters might be related to some other characters or be an older version but it was totally unclear yeah it's like an easter egg that they don't have to work for at all right Right. Is, is, yeah, and to me, I think it's, I think it's important because yeah, to me, that's the biggest shift in, that's to me where Monarch goes from being shadowy government organization that's the antagonist to plucky group of scientists and technicians who are trying to save the world from itself, which is Monarch in the last two movies, uh, with right. Shirazawa being like one of our absolute heroes who works very much for Monarch. Yeah, and they just didn't really do the work. I think of drawing the connection from one to the other or the how things changed basically right yeah right so we've been dancing around this idea of what we call the um godzilla and kong and all their buddies uh and i, I think that the way that they're named is a big part of it especially because and i know paul this is something that, that you and i have talked about and nate i really want to hear your thoughts on it as well to me a major theme about this is how does humanity relate to these creatures and you know, just the basic question of do you call them monsters or do you call them titans or do you just say they're animals it is a really big deal. Um, so let's just start there. Paul, why for you is it so important that they are referred to as animals? I mean, because they are, you know, they're I mean, you could call them megafauna or whatever, but like they're animals the way the dinosaurs were animals. Like right. they're really big and humans can find them scary because they have power, you know, but like they're just they're just 
giant animals that are just doing their thing. And, like, humans have uh, done things that have antagonized them. And mostly they're defending themselves, you know, mm-hmm. or sometimes maybe searching for food. Um, and, you know, I mean, Godzilla seems to have a little bit more of a sort of like a mission a lot yeah. of the time, <laughs> right? Um, but, like, especially, like, in Skull Island, it's like Kong is a big ape, you know? Like, yeah. there are apes in the real world, like, that aren't that far away from humans, you know, genetically. And uh, being even bigger, I feel like like Kong pro- has a huge brain, probably, right? Like, probably really, really smart. Uh, they, they show, like, some level of intelligence, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure, and like they kind of treat Kong as a person, but th- that's that's actually why I liked the last movie more than Skull Island is because I mean honestly, like that's the character I related to the most. Yeah, and okay. uh, you know, I, it when they had uh, the the young girl teaching Kong and Kong learning to sign and them them talking to each other, like. I kind of think about, I'm like, wow, like, why wouldn't, you know, the the other Iwi have already been, and maybe they did, and we just didn't see it, they didn't show it, right. but, like, have this, like, real, just literal way of basically talking to each other, um, and, of course, I don't think you need to be able to, to speak or, or communicate in words to, to treat each other well, right, or right. to relate to one another necessarily, but when it's possible, like, why not do it? Um, so that's one of the reasons that I, I enjoyed Godzilla v. Kong, um, more than, than Skull Island. Cause I, I just, Kong just felt like a person to me, like a really big dude, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, animal rights and the way humans treat animals is one of my number one issues, if not number one issues, you know, aside from the way humans treat other humans and seeing it like kind of dealt with in these movies but also kind of not um was just a little a little frustrating or very frustrating and like the fact that like the kind of nicer looking ones are the good guys and like the skull crawlers or whatever they're ugly so they're evil like maybe not the best yeah i mean i i kind of had the thought even in regard to uh kong and godzilla and, and the movie somewhat right. calls this out, but I think it's also because, you know, on numerous episodes of Superhero Ethics, Paul, you and I, as well as me and Jacob and other guests and other hosts have talked about that one of the things that Hollywood will do a lot is that when dealing with aliens or other groups of human that are foreign or different, you know, they will, if you're supposed to not, if you're supposed to like someone, they'll make them pretty, you know, uh, look at like the difference between like, you know, Loki and like the um, Malachi. Uh, right. from, you know, Thor 2. Like, you know, one yeah. of them looks... Uh, I don't even know there's a good... Better example, like, Loki versus the Chitauri, you know? Like, sure. Loki yeah. is supposed yeah. to be like, sure, he's a little bit genocidal. Sure, he's done, like, <laughs> horrible things. But isn't he cute? Isn't he forgivable? Right. The Chitauri are just made to look horrible and ugly and terrifying so that you can feel they're utterly irredeemable and watch your heroes slaughter them with abandon. Right. Um, and there's a lot of stuff there about, like, connections to... You know, people being coded as, as like aliens of color and, and mm-hmm. like all that kind of stuff. For sure. And I feel like that's one of the themes that the movies here start to explore because they acknowledge that, like, that Kong is the much more relatable one, partially because right. Kong does learn to communicate. 
But Kong also feels like he's much more connected to humanity. He's interested in humanity. Yeah. Whereas, like, Godzilla winds up helping us, but Godzilla never is like, let me help the humans. It's just like, oh, this person is just, this other monster is threatening me as Godzilla. The fact that he's doing that by destroying cities, like, Godzilla doesn't care about that. Godzilla, you know, has a relationship to humanity that, like, you know, humanity has to ants. Um, right. And so, yeah, so I felt both, like, there was some interesting thing they were tapping into, but also, like, that they were kind of getting away from it in terms of how they, they set up Godzilla and Kong. Uh, Nate, what about you? What's, what's your kind of take on how they did this? And, and we'll circle back to the actual names used, but just in these general terms. So... Just to touch on one thing that uh, might, ex- it's totally a retcon, it's from a comic book, but the reason the Iwi don't communicate with Kong before Jai, the girl from Godzilla versus Kong, mm-hmm. is their culture had no language whatsoever, which is an artistic choice that raises a lot of questions, <laughs> but... Language was introduced to them when, um, uh, and I'm blanking on John C. Riley's character's name, but when he comes to island, that's their first yeah. introduction to language of any kind. Hmm. Right. So then when, uh, in another comic, when they're wiped out uh, and Jai is adopted, that's why Jai learns sign language. Right. So she can communicate with um, the scientist who's played by Rebecca Hall, who's right. her adopted mother, and right. she passes that on to Kong. So they they do explain it, but who wants to read the side comics unless yeah. you're me? <laughs> right, right, right. And, and we're definitely going to get into the way the Iwi are treated in these movies. That, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, a, that's an ethical topic as well. But yeah, but, yeah, but I'm curious for you, how do you feel about this idea of the degree to which humans can or can't relate to the big animals in these movies, especially compared to some of the others that you know and love? So, in these movies, uh, these are the most animalistic versions of these characters. Um, And in a lot of ways, they're not animalistic at all. Um, Kong does behave very intelligently godzilla behaves um in theory only so that balance exists so the planet exists so he can rule it which is at least a motivation which is more than he gets in some of the older films right um yeah i think they say that in this he's he's more a creature of instinct than intelligence right lizard brained although you know, you make a lizard brain that big, yeah. there's going to be some complex thought. Whereas we see Kong, even in Skull Island, he sees Brie Larson's character trying to help this uh, mm-hmm. giant water buffalo. And later on, he recognizes her. Right. And that's a level of intelligence that, like, I think absolutely you have you have to respect that. And... I think there's a there's a lot of problems with how the monsters are treated in these movies. I I still don't understand why the Mutos from the 2014 Godzilla are a problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because they're referred to as parasites 
because they're parasitic towards Kong, uh, or uh, Godzilla's species, but they eat radiation. <laughs> Seems like it they could be a nice symbiotic. Up. Right. Well, I mean, they, they do they trash do... a number of cities on their way to go find the radiation, in fairness. But that seems like a if we could move the radiation <laughs> towards them. Right. You know, like like they're they're walking, breathing uh, deproliferation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we we as a species are like, got to blow that up. <laughs> Uh, yeah. and, and so these movies, the real monsters are the humans, and that that tracks with a lot of the old Godzilla movies too, at least the better ones. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and that that idea I've always loved. Like I always love, you know, Frankenstein as a story, and the idea that like you know, Doctor Frankenstein is the monster, not the monster that Frankenstein creates. Um, it, but I think it, it it just really gets to this idea of the names being so important because I feel like. I'm really glad you, Nate, can talk about how in in the originals, these are not necessarily like naturally existing creatures that we're supposed to be trying to live in harmony with. They're things that are the creations of mankind. To me, like, crocodiles are scary, you know, for understandable reasons. But crocodiles aren't, like, evil. They're, they're just animals doing their thing. And if you screw with them, like, you know, fuck around and find out. Yeah. Um, and And just labeling them monsters versus... Uh, animals, I think. I think it's a very significant, or like something technical, like mutos or something like that. It, it, it to me, it's a really interesting lesson in how much the name you give something is very much going to shape the perception of it. Yeah, and vice versa, right? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when when I initially when, when Paul had asked in chat to call them large animals, I was like, well, that's a little silly. It's called the MonsterVerse, and you know, they've always been monsters. And then I thought about it a little bit and it's like, no, Paul's 100% correct on this. Yeah. These are not monsters in these movies. Now, I guess there, if you want to be pedantic about it, there are some definitions of monster that indicates a, a large size and singularity. Sure. Maybe they meet that, but that that's not right. the common definition. These are, unique animals right. to, to me that's also a very human distinction of animals that we can control and domesticate and hunt and feel safe around are animals animals that are too big for us to be able to domesticate or hunt or feel like we can control then they become monsters like to me that's right. a very telling of the human perspective towards these animals and yeah there's a lot of perspective in the word itself right exactly well, and this is actually, I think, a good, uh, let me actually, this is a big topic, and, and I know for Paul, especially when you have a lot of feelings on it, I want to kind of transition into the, another way we can look at them, which, which uh, shapes the different perspective, but is there more you want to say about the, the way they're seen in terms of, like, the animal rights ideas of it? Oh, um, no, I mostly said, um, I think, what I had to say, like, animals good, humans can be bad, can be good, like, I mean... No, more like animals neutral, you know, yeah. and humans can, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of neutral, like to me, especially like Godzilla is the definition of neutral, you know. Right. Kong, yep. Kong has more, 
a different kind of intelligence maybe and so more ability of like decision making and relation Godzilla is just literally a force of nature right yeah yeah it's it's, it's portrayed that way for sure yeah exactly and um yeah just I I guess one the last thing I'd add to that is that uh, I found Skull Island fairly upsetting because it was just tons of animal on animal violence basically mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also really didn't like that Kong was, like, eating some of them. Because, like, I guess apes aren't actually vegetarian. They're they're omnivorous. But they mostly eat, like, ants and stuff. Um, mm. And so it just... I don't know. It was just super graphic and gross to me. But, like... Um, Which is funny because I, I, I didn't like Godzilla vs. Kong much more. And, and I would have thought that you would, but I can understand the different perspective. Because in that one, humanity does much more to try and control Kong. And that's what right. really bothered me. Yeah, no, I mean, I found that upsetting, too. Uh, but I found that upsetting in the sort of way that this is a thing that would happen is upsetting, you know. And uh, seeing Kong basically just decide what to do himself right. uh, was... Yeah, no, I mean, it's not like I watched that movie and was like, oh, this, I love this movie. You know, it's just... <laughs> yeah. It's like there, there were parts that I... I, I enjoyed i liked that kong felt like he had more agency in it um and i i just thought it looked super cool with like the glowing axe and like godzilla's like light up spikes in hong kong you know which is a beautiful looking city so (laughs) that was a fun part for sure you know um but yeah it it, it's 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 tough you know Mm -hmm. i mean i i just think people in general don't give enough consideration to you know, the suffering of animals and the, um, you, you know, the, the agency and thoughts and feelings of animals. And these movies both sort of make people think about that a little bit, but also, like, completely not. Yeah. So, I, mean, I don't even know. In the, even in the first movie where the people from Monarch wind up being, you know, supportive of Godzilla and, you know, let them fight, I think it's very telling that the intrinsic worth of Godzilla is because of the value he brings to humanity. Mm, mm-hmm. Of, like, fighting the other monster. There's no sense of just, like, he, he's part of nature. Like, just let him be. Um, you know, maybe protect ourselves. But but there's a real, like, no, we can't kill him because he serves humanity's interests by helping right. keep the balance and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and we're going to get more into humanity's uh, other approaches to this in a bit. But first, I think one of the other names that gets used for these creatures in these movies... Uh, is Titans, which, Nate, you've mm-hmm. brought up a couple times. And I think that's a good intro to this discussion of mythology, that the role that mythology plays in these movies. Because, and actually, the, the writers have said a couple times that there's a number of reasons why they chose Titans. And one is, frankly, because like they didn't want to choose Kaiju because, in part, Pacific Rim and how much that term had gotten connected to that universe, which is kind of sad to me since that term originally was about these creatures, not the ones that right. said Grimm. But that's intellectual property is a weird thing. But also I know it's because of the, the sort of mythological aspect of Titans. And Nate, I know that, that was something you helped bring to our attention. So say more about that and kind of how you felt about how that was treated in these movies. So the term Titan, I think is... It makes sense for what they were going for, especially in King of the Monsters. So, whereas Gareth Edwards had said he wanted Godzilla to be a force of nature in the 2014 movie, um, I don't know 
the guy's name i apologize to him uh if he's listening uh thank you please leave a review uh but it when they made king of the monsters he said he wanted to put the god back in godzilla and we see several moments that really allude to that including when mothra shows up and sheds light you know and our human character who just wanted Godzilla dead because his son died, sees the light and realizes they have to go save Godzilla. Oh, the Christ metaphors throughout this were way over the top. Michael Yeah, yeah. Heavy-handed might might be a a, a light light, (laughs) uh, criticism for that. But Titan really reflects that view. Um it also muddies the waters, unfortunately, because they had a name for these creatures that wasn't monster. They had Muto, but then they decided that Muto was going to specifically refer to the uh, insect-like uh, creatures we saw in the 2014 movie. So then they had to come up with another blanket term for these things. Right. I really appreciate you going into that, Nate, because I do think it's one of the most interesting things about these movies is that they're really going to this idea of these creatures as being kind of like demigods. I mean, they describe them as gods a couple times. And the, um, you know, and Serizawa, the scientist who's from Monarch, who becomes a very much a main character, you know, he becomes almost kind of this like worshipful attitude towards these creatures. So, like, you know, these are like the, the, the denizens of nature and we humanity are meant to just kind of serve them and honor them. And he winds up like dying in order to help save Godzilla uh, with nuclear power, which is what he feeds off of. And it's again, it's a uh, great scene in a lot of ways and also has some uncomfortable imagery for sure. But I think that it really gets into this idea of, of these creatures being like, you know, myths and, and beyond human understanding and, and consideration. It, is that somewhat unique to these movies or is that, is that a theme that has played in some of the others? That is, and, and also, I'm curious what you think about it from like an ethical perspective and how that's portraying it. It is fairly unique to these movies. Um, so, the, the early Godzilla films, Godzilla is bad for about the first two, and then it slowly slide, slides into the 60s camp where he's more Godzilla friend to children. Um, and he's very, very much not, uh, intimidating. And then they did a reboot era where Godzilla is always against humanity, but sometimes useful and, uh, does sometimes fights things that, uh, humanity creates and therefore is useful, but there's never the reverence except for, for Mothra. Mothra mm-hmm, has right. always been treated as a godlike being and worshipped. Interesting. Um, and always by two twins heralding the act, usually like pixies, you know, little tiny twins, but sometimes full sized people uh, mm-hmm. heralding the coming of Mothra. And when you say pixies, you mean children? Uh, I, I no, I mean like green screened or whatever the technology in the 60s was to make them look eight inches tall oh okay um (laughs) also i do not mean the punk rock band although i like that band uh (laughs) 
Well, so, Paul, what, what what's your take on, like, this perspective? I, I definitely have some strong feelings on, like, the message behind that. But I'm curious, what's your take on it? I think the message that that's, like, how we should see them, I think, is problematic. Mm-hmm. I th- mm-hmm. think the existence of a character or multiple characters who see them this way makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought that scene in King of the Monsters was both touching and absurd. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. like on a couple levels. Like, one, it's like, really? Like, can't you just shoot the... Th- like, don't... Okay. Like, it's, it's like, it's the writer was just like, someone to has to die, you know? Yeah. And, like, I'll name that, like, they killed off the Japanese character in Skull Island, you know, Gunpei, without us ever, like, really seeing him. And then they killed off Sarazawa in King of the Monsters, and they killed off Sarazawa in Godzilla v. Kong. And, like, yep. I don't know. I mean, they killed a lot of people, so to some extent, they're kind of, you know, covering themselves there. But it's like... I don't know. I, I in Skull Island, I really would have liked seeing, you know, the two pilots who crashed on Skull Island. Like, how did things go from there? You know, like that's the story I want to see in so this. Why verse. is it the American pilot who survives and not the Japanese one? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I think I definitely have that issue. I I also though for me, to me this issue ties back a lot to what we we're saying before because I feel like creating mythology around them is another way of otherizing them mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. this further idea of the idea that there can be, be there can be living creatures that are just far beyond the scale of humanity and that are impossible for humanity to ever control like the idea that that just could be a natural occurring thing is so far beyond the comprehension of the human mind that we have to build them into these mythological god figures to be worshipped mm. and and maybe this is like the movie being very intelligent or just kind of, you know, a stopped watch is, is right twice. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I think there's something very profound about that, about this idea of if we can't control it, that means it has to be mythological. It has to be super magical because right. we as humans, of course, if it's in the natural world, we should just be able to control it. Right. Well, and it, it really does speak to the fact that humans, when we can't explain things, there's a part of our brain that cannot handle that and we need to fashion a story around it and so the almost worship of these creatures is kind of i don't know if it's intentionally but does speak to that fact that we need a way to explain these things and part of that is through worship and reverence for them or through despising them um, and and there is kind of, I guess, intended to be an arc about Sarazawa, the religious father, and his son, who who's a non-believer who creates his own god. Um, for context, especially for those who either didn't catch it, could subtly done, or just haven't seen these movies. The son of Sirizawa is the pilot who is supposed to basically helps to create Mechagodzilla and then is supposed to be the controller of Mechagodzilla, but shocking and surprising, quickly gets killed so that Mechagodzilla becomes just its own entity. Yeah, the the, the writers really kind of like took the quick eject button on that, that <laughs> conflict. Like, I will yeah. defend the writers slightly because I'm not sure it's their fault. Uh, the director has said... The first cut of this film was almost five hours long. 
No, we <laughs> we criticize the film we get, and the film we got did not treat Ren Sarazawa well, and right. I think that's a totally valid criticism. I just think the writers did have a storyline for that character that we right. never saw. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I want to be very clear. I think it's important to name that and to say that as a critique. We are not calling for the Zarazawa cut. This is not a Snyder cut kind of situation. Speak for yourself. I'll watch all five horrible hours. There you go. I mean, why do people keep making movies they know are longer than they're going to be allowed to air in in theaters? Yeah. Well, and I do think, though, that that's also, um, you know, I, I would have loved to see that version of the movie because I think it would have been interesting to see, as you said, like, I'd even thought of it in those terms, but like Shirazawa and his son having such different approaches to how they see these creatures uh, is a really interesting dynamic to yeah. explore. And like, I mean, we never heard about the fact, like, I honestly don't know if Shirazawa Jr. like knows how his father died. And mm. like, that would have been a great thing to explore. But, but the other thing it connects to me is that I just, all the stuff we discuss, like we're headcanning a lot because it just makes me feel yeah. like, I'm gl- I'm very glad the people who wanted the movies that these were got what they wanted. You know, I think that's awesome. It makes me feel like I we made a joke about like the Feige of it all. You know, if there had been one basically showrunner in charge of these four movies and said at the beginning, like, here's the story of Monarch and here's who it's going to be over these four things. Here's the story of these creatures. Like, I think that could have been a fascinating way to approach it because it. So much we're, we're kind of like fumbling in the dark to come up with some ethical understandings of this, but it's the con- inconsistency is what that makes it so much harder. For sure, yeah, I feel that way about the Alien franchise, where I think there's a lot of interesting stuff, and there's like the company, and we never really get to know everything that's going on because, like, it was just a sequence of writers and directors, and I don't think ever was conceived as being this like cohesive franchise exactly the way right. connected universes are now I, um, I mean we joke always that we wish that they had a feige but like feige invented the idea of being a feige like i mean that sounds like a ridiculous sentence yes. taken out of context but like the idea of like all these movies being tied together this cohesively is a fairly new understanding right completely but yeah i mean feige basically invented the idea of doing a tv series in movie theaters like, exactly <laughs> I think it's a pretty good way to put it yeah and, um oh the, go ahead well, so I think, obviously, the, the folks who, you know, if you look at these movies and say, oh, well, what are the ethical questions to be asked about? I think that the one that is the, the most clear, like, we got to get into this, is the group of people who become kind of the main antagonists in the third movie and somewhat, like, their, their effects are lingering in the fourth, who basically decide that they are, you know, that they have a very clear idea of the role that these creatures should play in, in nature and so they go to what would be described by some as terroristic terrorist ideas, to some as liberationary ideas, if you agree with their ideas, you know, wherever you see it. But they basically, like, use violence to uh, try and take over and release all these animals. And, again, with an attempt to kind of control them that quickly fails, because surprise, surprise, we can't control them. But they, I think, have a very interesting and kind of very different moral view than, than most of the rest of the characters of the, like, you know, not just let them fight, but let them rule. What, what's your, what's your both take on, did that, that group, did they ever get like a name? They oh. did. I cannot remember it. I just okay. wanted you to call them terrorists. And I was going to say, you got to stop calling them that. Yeah. But... No, that, that's why I like after Falcon, the winter soldier. I mean, I've always thought that like, that's I know. A very 
to me, that's like the monsters. You know, it's an incredibly pejorative name. That for sure. I think they're pretty legit antagonists, and I'm not really yes. down with them. But like, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so what's your take on them and their goals and and where they come from? So, I, oh, go ahead. No, you, no, you go, please. I, I I disagree with their methods, um, and clearly their folly is thinking that they can control these things. Right. But I don't know that they're completely in the wrong. Uh, you know, we see that the Mudos can decontaminate nuclear areas and in the in the newspaper clippings they talk about uh the rainforest regrowing in the wake of these titans so means to an end uh how they did it is absolutely wrong and they did unleash perhaps the one creature you could call a monster in this which is Ghidorah which is more of an alien than a monster not that alien has a super positive connotation for sure but Ghidorah is a being of pure malevolence and I, I don't feel I don't feel too bad ragging on Ghidorah um but once again it goes back to hubris their hubris and mon- monarch's hubris for thinking they could contain these things uh, <laughs> you know it, it's just Ultimately, there's so much about the plot line of that movie that makes no sense that it's hard for me to formulate who was right or wrong in it. <laughs> very legit, very legit. I feel like they're not more wrong than like the US Navy launching an oxygen destroyer, whatever thing. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know? <laughs> um they're to the extent that anything in the movie has a coherent anything. I feel like they sort of have a coherent viewpoint, which is that, you know, humans have messed up the planet and these beings should be freed to kind of reset things a little bit. Right. And like, okay, like not saying I would do it, uh, not saying I would do it that way. And yeah, freeing Ghidorah, like maybe they should have done a little more research in terms of Ghidorah not quite being part of the planetary ecosystem. Having said that, like, coming from another planet or wherever shouldn't necessarily make Ghidorah evil, you know? <laughs> like, it. I mean, it does seem, like, not super cool. But, um, but yeah, then, like, the whole thing with Emma then being like, no, actually, she because she was the one who, like, helped them. They didn't know that she was helping them. And then she's like turns on them and the whole thing with the thing that can control like oh geez um it just (laughs) it's just a lot and it's it's just yeah they've got a viewpoint as reasonable as most of the other characters and you know maybe don't just like bust into a place and shoot a bunch of scientists like i'm i'm not into that but like all of these creatures are being held against their will, right? Whatever, titans, what, whatever we, we call them. Um, and, you know, setting them loose could cause a lot of harm. It could cause harm to them as well, like to, to you know, to Mothra, right? To Ghidorah, to whatever. 
Um, so I, I'm not like super on on team uh, Jonah. I guess is the the, yeah. the leader's name. Yeah. Um, Tywin Lannister is perfectly acceptable. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But like. I don't think anyone else in the movie is, like, super right either. So, like, eh. <laughs> You know. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I definitely think that's fair. And I think it's, it's again, one of those things where I think I was most disappointed. So I was like, this could be a very interesting plot line to explore. But instead, it's mostly just a, a way to create some family drama with Coach Taylor, who I know has an actual <laughs> name in this. But I'm a huge Friday Night Lights fan. And so that's how that father figure will always be known to me. I could um, not wait for that guy to get eaten. And I was so disappointed that he wasn't. Okay. I, I, I liked his character a lot more. But I, I understand the difference. Yeah. And I, I think it's. To me it's interesting to see the different ways that humanity would approach these things. You know. And the idea of yeah. Just let him free. Let humanity get. You know, I'm not a huge fan of humanity. We do some awful, awful things, and mm-hmm. like some, some, uh, you know, cutting back makes sense. I think though that they do put they they also sort of highlight a thing that I think is often a hypocrisy. There, Nate, you pointed out there's often this idea of like humanity is so wrong and terrible to think that they can control these monsters. We should let them free, but we'll control them just enough so that we're safe. Because of course right. we're the good part of humanity, right? Right. You know, right. and it's um like. <laughs> For all my problems with Thanos, uh, mostly that he's bad at math. Uh, but like, so bad at math. But but the fact that he's like, I'm not going to in any way, you know, he could have snapped himself out and that would have been okay. Like, there's just no, like, he's going to snap literally randomly half. Yeah. Uh, Jonah and his people are not doing that. The only other little thing I'll say about that is, and I'm glad at least that it wasn't played up more, I care a lot about redemption arcs. I love a good redemption arc. I love, you know, when something is earned and you really see a character go through things. For a scientist to participate in what well could be the genocide of all humanity, but then because her daughter disagrees with her, she tries to fight, she tries to save her daughter, and thus that redeems her for attempt to take part in the genocide of all humanity. No. No, 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 no. <sighs> I was not down Thank for you. Emma's mother being uh, 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 um, rehabilitated with the word. Uh, getting redemption in that moment. I was like, no, come on. And I, I wasn't glad. That, I wasn't like, yay, kill the human. But like, if that character had lived through the movie and had a happily ever after, I would have like been, no, that's no, not okay. Let's be perfectly honest. And I'm not saying this is right. But the second the military showed up and she showed up, they would have shot her. Yes. <laughs> because this was all her fault. Um. And I, I sh- just uh, something that popped in my head, and I don't know why I thought of it, but uh, to defend Monarch slightly, the all the all the Titans were slumbering and hibernating until they got woke up by the Orca or Ghidora. So they were more, they were containing them while they were asleep, which in a way is almost protecting them, but. Yeah, we we see how that worked out for Monarch too. Yeah. <laughs> so they were Definitely. preschool teachers basically, right? Or, right. Well, they they weren't imprisoning them. Well, the the question is if someone is sleeping for 100 years and you build a brick wall around them, is that person imprisoned? <laughs> uh because that's essentially what Monarch did. 
Only it falls apart when that person can tear apart the brick wall. But yeah. right, right, right. I, I get where you're going, but yeah. Well, and so let's talk about the one other um, thing in this movie that I wanted to touch on, and then kind of talk on some um, more meta questions to the movie, and then and then uh, uh, wrap this up. The Iwi people, and I don't, I don't know if there's gonna be much discussion here, as much as I think this just needs to be named. But um, you know. In, I think I think it was one of the, the only real sour moments of Kong Skull Island, frankly, is that we meet this kind of like in, basically the way that we learn that Kong isn't an antagonist and is kind of like a good guy is through this introduction of an indigenous people that live on Skull Island. And as far as I can tell, they made at least some attempt to have some understanding and sensitivity of what actual Polynesian like South uh, South Pacific uh indigenous populations would be like but still everything from the you know the language issue to the way that they're basically just plot devices to the next movie we just find out they've been genocided and that's not really a big deal we're just going to mention it and move on it's it's a lot of white nonsense yes yeah super not the best um (laughs) (laughs) so you know i don't know whether there are peoples that like don't have any language like as a as a group, I think having a character who doesn't speak any language, mm-hmm. I think is great for representation. Um, but I th- I think the idea that the whole people's like has no language or no like clear way of communication um, is like super othering. And if that's actually a thing somewhere in the world, then um, then this would be good in terms of representation of that, but that's yeah. not something I'm aware of. I, to me, it felt like it was a plot device to make them not have to be dealt with as characters and right. treated as people. And then instead, there's the white dude from Chicago who explains everything that they're, he learned from them, but like none of them actually say anything. They're so. very much the noble savage trope. Yeah, uh, you know, and... and you know, he talks about how advanced they are and how they're on another level. And I can give you the comic book explanation for it. It's not satisfying. It is still yeah. white nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't appear on screen. You know, I think it's kind of like yeah. uh, J.K. Rowling telling us that Dumbledore's gay. You know, like it didn't right, happen right. on screen, it didn't right. happen on print. So yeah, not so yeah it, it wasn't a prequel comic. But the whole reason they don't speak is so that the skull crawlers don't. don't sense them or don't know they're around. And so they use facial and physical cues. Mm-hmm. And they've. This is where it gets super problematic. It's become evolved to the point where they barely move the little muscles in their face to communicate. And it's like. I don't know. I'm not really super cool with this. Yeah. It's just a problem. And like the point that you're making about like maybe there are cultures that that don't have communicative language, I think that could be an interesting thing to explore. But then you really need to spend a lot of time with it. Yes. Because frankly That's a movie. Like yes. that's not to, a, a line. You know what movie I would watch? I would watch Skull Island just uh, the two pilots and the Iwi and like Kong can just be in the background and walk through the back of a, the scene once or twice. <laughs> yeah. I would watch I that movie. Great. 
I would watch but, that. But the point I was making is because I, I feel like what they give oh, us, sorry. and I haven't even thought of it in these terms, but if you really dive deep, it's really problematic. Is we have this story about Kong, who is seen as a monster, but that actually he is much more relatable to humans because of his ability to communicate, and then in a later language, in a later movie, to actually speak a language. And then you got a bunch of people who are actually humans. And if we're defining humanity in that regard by your ability to communicate with language and they don't speak a language, like, there's a lot of juxtapositions. Yeah, it's not the best. There's a lot of juxtapositions there. Not the best. Yeah, and they they do obviously communicate in ways, and I think that's important. But, yeah, I feel like that needed to be explored much more because on the surface it can look really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And And it does. And I, I will say this. They tried to be less problematic than the original film, but in twenty, you know that movie came out in twenty seventeen, twenty sixteen. Right in twenty sixteen, being less problematic than a movie made in the nineteen thirties uh, shouldn't be the only goal, right? Yeah, yeah. fair. What nineteen thirties? I thought these were all sort of made post post atomic. So no, when the first ones oh, were made, no, uh, the, the King Kong. You're talking about King Kong, right? Yeah, oh, I yeah, might no, be. Right. I might be wrong on the age of King Kong. No, no, yeah, I, I was thinking of I the, think the kaiju movies, but you're right. King Kong does predate that. And honestly, that's another part of the story that I would. This is kind of getting more into meta stuff, and then we'll start wrapping up. But to me, what the first time I hear Godzilla vs Kong, part of what I think is. One of these is a creature out of Western imagination. The other is a creature out of, like, Japanese post-atomic imagination. And to me, just, like, that alone makes for such an interesting, like, cross-cultural thing that happens in a movie. Yeah. Um, of, like, exploring those two different ideas of what a Kajira... Not Kajira. Um, that's a gory Kaiju? Kaiju. Uh, kaiju. Uh, of what a, a kaiju or a, a giant ape or whatever it is, you know... But again, that's a point that isn't explored in the slightest. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the first King um, Kong was 1933. Okay. Right. Yeah, and then 76, and then 05. So. so yeah, I think we've had a lot to say about this. Uh, I remember, Nate, when I first suggested this, you were like, um, what, are, what in the world are the ethics of these movies that we're going to talk about? And I, I hope we've proven to you that between Paul and I, our collective talent for bullshit is that we can find ethics in anything we want to discuss. Oh, there's um, bullshit in everything. Please don't challenge... Or ethics, ethics. I, I am drawing the line that even though Paul and I both watched Mortal Kombat, I am not <laughs> going to record an ethics podcast on that. Even though I'm sure I probably could figure out a way to do it. But anyway, um, is there any kind of last comments, either one you want to make as we wrap up? Finish them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I should have said let, the, let them fight before Paul said finish them, but you know... <laughs> that can be our sign off well thank you both so much for being a part of this I think it was a great conversation and uh, as much as I loved Falcon the Winter Soldier it was fun to talk about something else for the first time in literally two months Um, so (laughs) as always audience what did you all think we'd love to get your thoughts Um, this podcast as well as my other podcast on Star Wars and some other topics uh, can all be found at theethicalpanda.com you can also uh, there you'll find contact information but also if you search on Facebook or Twitter uh, under the Ethical Panda, uh, you can send messages that, to us that way, or just contact us at theethicalpanda at gmail.com. I love putting all this together. I love getting to work with great guests like Paul and Nate and uh, a lot of the other people who've been on. 
uh, Jessica Plummer, who's been a very regular guest. We have another one coming up with her on comic history. Uh, that's going to be coming up soon. That's going to be great. I love doing all this. Um, it is a lot of work and there's a lot of time and effort and, and money that goes into it. So if you love these podcasts and, and you feel up for it, would love it if you can go to our Patreon. Uh, just go to patreon.com, search for The Ethical Panda, you know, and throw us a couple bucks a month. Uh, it really helps to make these possible. And there's a lot of great things that you get. Um, if we have an outtakes track you're going to get. We'll get publicly thanked. Uh, a couple other great things like that. So if you're feeling up for that, please uh, think about doing that. Obviously, not everyone can, and that's totally okay, too. We're just not in the inclination. That's fine, too. Just want to let you know the options there. You can also support us by just going on iTunes or wherever else you do reviews. Give us a five-star review. It helps to let people find the podcast, uh, and it just helps let people know where we are and that this is something worth checking out. If you're a Star Wars fan, over on my other podcast, Star Wars the, Universe, the Star Wars Universe podcast, we are about to start a podcast on The Bad Batch, a new TV show that's coming out on Disney+, Plus, all about parts of the uh, group of clones existing in the like post-Clone War, early Empire days. I'm really excited. We're going to do that in partnership with the Animation Deliberation podcast, which, Nate, I know you've been a part of because we're just all the big incestuous mess of podcasters here on the Straight Up Panda <laughs> Podcast Network. Um, and that's the last thing I'll say is um, these podcasts... And a couple others are all part of this great thing called the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. You can find it all at strandedpanda.com. Great podcasts about the MCU, DC, Star Wars, Star Trek, Orville, all sorts of random stuff under Bingers Assemble or Pandavision. Definitely check all that out. And so that's all the ways you can contact me and, and give us official feedback, but also for you all. Uh, Nate, tell us a bit more about some of the other podcasts you've been on and, and how po- folks can contact you. Um, so you can find me on the Stranded Panda Facebook group. Uh, just say something offensive and I'm a moderator there. So me and Matt will have me, Matt, Matthew, <laughs> uh, Brian, Ashley. We'll all have a little chat about what you said. Uh, <laughs> and then we can boot you immediately. No, uh, it, in, in all, in all seriousness, it's a great group. I, I strongly encourage the Facebook group. Uh, I also will plug again animation deliberation specifically. Um, if you're looking for a show, Falcon the Winter Soldier just wrapped up. Go ahead and binge Invincible. There's one episode left. It comes out on Friday. It's been an amazing series that I encourage people to watch. Don't let the fact that it's animation put you off. Um, And then I'm going to give three movie suggestions if you like monster movies but want something with a deeper sense of meaning. Watch the original Godzilla, the Japanese cut with subtitles. Watch the 1933 King Kong and then watch Shin Godzilla, which I believe came out in 2014 or 2015. Yeah. Those three have a lot more to say than these movies did. Yeah, and I, I, I I'll admit I wanted to see Shin Godzilla, Shin Gajira before this. Um, between work and doing a lot of podcasting, it's just been crazy, and I wish I'd gotten to, but I think we intentionally kept the focus just on these four movies instead. But I am planning to watch that and at some point, and maybe Nate will get you back and, and do one on that movie specifically, because I do know it goes much deeper on these things. And Paul, for folks who want to find your content, other than the um, Superhero Ethics podcast, of which you are very much not a co-host. Definitely um, not a co-host. Nor on Star Wars Universe podcast, where you can frequently be found. But where else can people find you? Uh, Twitch.tv slash Zen Madman. Um, 
I could use more followers, and that would inspire me to make more stuff. <laughs> and uh, hopefully by the time this actually gets posted, I will have made more stuff. Yeah. And like, I guess Twitter, you know, Zen Madman there too. So Yeah, help yeah. sign up, encourage him to make more stuff. One of the things he's been doing is a series of videos on teaching chess where he takes this utterly incompetent redhead who is trying to learn about chess and teaches him. The redhead is deeply charming and very visually appealing on film, I have to say. Uh, it's me. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I want to get better at chess. And the other way we can do that is if Paul can justify making videos about it unless we can justify adding yet one more project to our very overly stressed schedules already. So go check out all of his stuff. I say that to support him, not for my purely unselfish means. <laughs> get but... Matthew chess lessons. Yes, exactly. <laughs> at twitch.tv slash zenmadman. Exactly. So... Paul, Nate, thank you so much for being a part of this. To all you listeners, thank you so much. Have a great day. <laughs>